Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Now, let's turn our attention to what's going on in the world of politics meeting reality. And Lisa Bromitz, I think this is a fascinating uh, topic uh, because uh, when people talk about the the building of the wall and so on between the United States and Mexico, and no one really takes that next step, which says, all right, so what kinds of materials, what kind of businesses would be Well, Bill Sandbrook does. He's the CEO of U.S. Concrete, and he is here uh, on the phone talking with us. And Bill, uh, I want to get your take first of all. I mean, President Trump has talked a lot about infrastructure spending. Do you have a sense, aside from the wall, what is he prioritizing to get done? Good morning, Lisa. Uh, He's prioritizing – there's two main – approaches. One critical infrastructure to help in the movement of of goods and people uh, from the places they work to the places they live, from the places items are, are manufactured to the places they're consumed. And a list of 50 priority projects was published earlier this, this week uh, from places around the country. A lot of it was rail-based. A lot of it was bridge-based. A lot of it was highway-based. But they were they're projects that uh, have not been completed that could help aid in uh, growing our GDP, actually. Speaking a little bit of detail, if you don't mind, Bill, just in terms of how you uh, got into this business, uh, because in, in preparing for the interview, I had to learn a little bit about the history of uh, of concrete and, and cement and, and composites and so on, and maybe just explain a little of your projects and, and what expertise you have in this area. Well, sure, I, and I'll keep it brief. My, my father grew up, uh, he was employed in the cement industry in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, where cement was founded in the country. So I grew up around cement plants most of my formative years, went into the military, was in the Corps of Engineers, uh, combat engineers, worked on uh, many construction projects, left the military after 13 years, and ended up in a company just north of New York City in aggregates and asphalt and supplied a uh, significant amount of the aggregates used in the concrete and asphalt to build New York City in the, in the 1990s and early 2000s, and then moved on into a role at uh, U.S. Concrete uh, in 2011 and took over the CEO role at U.S. Concrete. And U.S. Concrete's, uh, we're, we operate in California, Texas, New York City, Washington, D.C., northern New Jersey, and we really 
concentrate on difficult uh, to perform and difficult specification and different difficult operating conditions, large infrastructure and building projects. For instance, we provided the concrete on the Oakland Bay Bridge, provided the concrete for the San Francisco 49ers Stadium in Santa Clara, the Freedom Tower in New York. We're working on the Bayonne Bridge right now. We're doing the reconstruction of LaGuardia Airport. So we do high, high volume, very difficult to perform and produce concrete projects in the major metropolitan cities that I just mentioned. Bill, there's been some discussion that there is a labor shortage when it comes to some of the more ambitious infrastructure plans. What has been your experience or your expectation with respect to whether we have sufficient workers in this country to carry out some of the plans? Well, I'll answer that in two ways. One, our primary workforce uh, consists of, of ready-mix truck drivers who have to have a specialized license, a commercial driver's license. And we do have have to work at obtaining a sufficient number of qualified drivers. The days are gone when you could just hang a sign outside and say driver position available and people would walk in your door already qualified. We do have to do job fairs and a lot of recruiting. And we've had some inflationary uh, pressures in our non-union labor rates as well in order to attract qualified drivers. Uh, As far as uh, shortages in in the construction trades, I I hear about it. I imagine the construction trades face the same thing I do with skilled workers in my uh, ready-mix truck drivers. But the, the reality of the situation is we're at a historically low labor participation rate in the country, basically 61 or 62 percent of the population, which means there's 38 percent sitting at home. Some probably can't work. Uh, but there's a lot of able-bodied men and women out there that uh, we need to get back into the workforce by providing high-paying jobs to make it more attractive for them to work than to actually subsist on whatever means they're they're obtaining currently. Uh, Bill, I wanted to get your take on the wall that President Trump has proposed building on the border of U.S. and Mexico. Uh, what is your sense of what this will actually end up looking like? Will it be a physical... Uh, concrete wall running uh, almost 1,500 miles along the border? Or will it look like something else? Well, it it definitely will be a physical barrier. The uh, materials that it's going to be built with are yet to be determined. And even if it would be a fence, there's still a significant amount of concrete needed for the footings and foundations and the the roads that that lead up to it and along our our side of that fence. So even under the scenario that it would be uh, a steel wall, uh, we'd have a lot of concrete necessary. Now, depending on the specifications, it could be precast concrete panels, as are in other walls in certain parts of the world. It could be poured-in-place concrete uh, that we would supply trucks and, and plants for. It's to be determined yet, it, or it can be a combination of all the above, depending on the topography of the terrain where the, that section of the wall is being built. Bill Sandbrook, thank you so much for joining us. Bill Sandbrook, CEO of U.S. Concrete in Texas.
We've gotten news earlier today that President Trump is willing to consider removing U.S. sanctions against Russia. We've heard a lot about Russia. We want to talk to somebody who has spent a lot of time there and who has reported there extensively. Uh, Bloomberg View columnist Leonid Bershitsky, uh, who has been writing extensively about uh Vladimir Putin and some of his uh, consequences on the nation of Russia. So first, I actually just want to start off by getting your take on what the implications would be for Russia if the U.S. were to ease up on sanctions. Well, first of all, I I don't really believe that the uh, U.S. or Trump um, is going to um, drop the sanctions unilaterally because that would contradict uh, his declared approach uh, to dealing with Russia, which is negotiating, trying to make a deal. You don't throw away your biggest trump card if you want to negotiate a deal. It doesn't really make sense in terms of, you know, bargaining technique. Um, But uh, if that were to happen, it would not really have any particularly serious consequences for the Russian economy because the sanctions at most, uh, by the most pessimistic uh, estimates, um, take about 0.5% of GDP a year. uh, And that is not really a huge uh, hindrance to Russia economically. Uh, But if the sanctions were dropped, it would certainly increase Putin's legitimacy um, and sort of, and an attempt to isolate him uh, as an international player, uh, which is something that is really much more important to uh, Putin than the financial aspect. Why? Why? Because basically, it would bring him into the fold on major negotiations and, and sort of give it, him legitimacy to his own people too. It would give him a seat too. at the table. Yeah. Uh, it would give him the respect that he sort of craves from the West. Uh, it would immediately make him a, a power broker in a number of regions, uh, and it would certainly make it easier for him to uh, pursue his policies in Europe. Um, uh, the you know the the EU's immediate periphery, the Balkans, Eastern Europe. Um, it would bring him back to the table as a, as, a, as a you know serious player uh, on par with the West. You wrote a column about how President Trump is a master of diversionary tactics. Can you explain? Give us some color. Uh, well, what I meant was uh, the you know the Trump team's um, penchant for throwing out um, all sorts of uh, stupid uh, bits of news, like uh, the idea that he was going to start a, a big investigation into voter fraud uh, in the election, or the entire debate about how many people attended the inauguration, you know, unimportant uh, stories that everybody's discussing uh, and that get reposted and discussed on the social networks much more than the more serious issues like uh, the Keystone Pipeline, even the wall that, uh, you know, Trump is clearly intent on financing, uh, as he promised during the campaign. Uh, These serious issues get much less play on the social networks and much less discussion than the, the, the non-serious bits of news that they throw out. 
And actually, I think the rumor that they're going to unilaterally cancel the Russia sanctions is uh, part of these diversionary tactics as the Trump administration uh, actually starts serious work on implementing some of the wildest election promises that Trump made during the campaign. Leonid, speak a little bit, if you can, about the uh, attitudes or the experiences that you've had uh, most recently uh, in Germany, if you don't mind, uh, only in the context of uh, the visit of uh, UK Prime Minister uh, Theresa May taking place today. Uh, Angela Merkel doesn't seem to be anywhere in this picture, at least not yet. Well, she's definitely not on that picture because, the, the, you know, the EU's stand, uh, which aligns very closely with Germany's stand in this case, um, uh, is actually rather punitive to the UK in terms of, the, you know, the terms of exit uh, and in terms of what the UK is going to be allowed to keep uh, from, you know, the, the free trade um, status that it enjoys within the EU, uh, if it doesn't allow the you know the, the the basic EU freedoms, including the freedom of movement, uh, so in Berlin there's really not much that you know that May is going to get from Merkel. Uh, with Trump, she can probably make more headway. Uh, because he doesn't care about the EU, he doesn't like the EU. Uh, he might even want to. He was he openly celebrated when Brexit was allowed and uh, announced. Uh, so um, May can actually get something from him just as a token of uh, of how he feels about Europe, about United Europe, about the EU. Um, you know, th this would be done to irk someone like Merkel. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Leonid. Always uh, insightful uh, joining us now. Uh, Leonid Bershitsky, he is our Bloomberg View columnist in Berlin. I urge you to go to BloombergView.com and read his and many other Bloomberg View columns. It's an interesting perspective on the world. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. about uh, President Trump and his worsening relationship with the Mexican government. I want to bring in Eric Martin. He's a Mexico government and economy reporter uh, at Bloomberg. He is in Mexico City. And Eric, I want to just start with getting a sense from you. What is the mood right now in Mexico City? Lisa, it's really amazing. Uh, the Mexican people and even rival politicians are supporting President Enrique Peña Nieto's decision to cancel his trip to Washington next week. I had one analyst say to me that Donald Trump has succeeded in doing what no politician has done for decades in Mexico, which is really uniting all Mexicans uh, in support of a single cause. And a lot of outrage uh, at the rhetoric that's being aimed at Mexico by the U.S., at the uh, escalation of uh, this standoff well, and this conflict. Eric, what are they united to do? What, what's sort of the uh, objective of the unity? To stand up to the U.S. Uh, it's an economy 
16 times larger than that of Mexico, but Mexico is a country in which the politicians and the policymakers have a lot of pride about the uh, the role that Mexico plays in the world. Uh, and we've seen uh, also firms like uh, Price Waterhouse that say Mexico will be the sixth biggest economy in the world by 2050. So this is a country that sees itself as ascendant, as on the rise, and is becoming increasingly more important and deserving of respect on a world stage. Eric, can you put this into the context of Mexican history? I mean, I know it's, you know, I don't want to do a history class all the way back to 1820, but having said that, you know, large parts of the United States were at that time part of Mexico. Uh, is the Mexican uh, perspective aware and, and vocal about that, that element of the intertwined history of the two countries? Absolutely. I mean, you have to look back uh, decades potentially to the administration of Calvin Coolidge to find a U.S. administration that has been so hostile to Mexico, Calvin Coolidge calling Mexico in those days Soviet Mexico, if you can imagine, and uh, an oil expropriation in the late 1930s. I mean, that's the last time that things have been this bad between these two countries. They've cooperated so well on a number of issues ranging from immigration and uh, homeland security, uh, you know, counterterrorism efforts to the environment in recent years and anti-drug effort. It's just really astounding that, uh, you know, in four working days in office, uh, Donald Trump has brought this relationship to the level where it currently sits. Well, and let's just talk about the relationship and, and where it currently sits. I mean, we've heard a lot of pretty inflammatory rhetoric, and yet there is talk from some ambassadors and uh, and others that perhaps there still is room to make uh, some negotiation. This is not heading toward a full-blown trade war just yet. How serious is it? Well, the Mexican government last night uh, and Foreign Minister Luis Vigarai in Washington expressed optimism that they can still reach uh, very good deal and very good agreements for both Mexico and the U.S. Donald Trump has previously spoken highly of Vigarai, praising him as a wonderful man and someone with whom the U.S. can make wonderful deals. But this is certainly not the first step and the start that either of these two sides probably would have envisioned uh, when they arranged this ill-fated presidential visit next week, which now will not take place. And, you know, they're going to continue working. No one's caught off the dialogue, but certainly a uh, very disappointing start to these talks. Eric, are business executives making plans not only for their businesses but themselves in terms of financial arrangements and future projects? Well, certainly uh, the business chambers are very focused on this and on uh, getting their allies in the business community in the U.S. to lobby on Capitol Hill and to lobby the Trump administration to continue NAFTA, to not impose tariffs, to not tear apart this relationship that's grown over more than two decades. Uh, Carlos Slim is going to be addressing the press later today in Mexico City, and I'm sure that he will be asked about this. Uh, reporters uh, are asking questions. And, uh, you know, it's certainly something that the business community here is very concerned, business community really on both sides of the border, about interruption of supply chains, urging Mexico and trade negotiators to diversify uh, trade lines to other countries, the TPP partners, for instance. But it's something that you can't do overnight. And this is a relationship that's grown up very focused around the U.S. More than 80 percent of Mexican exports go into the U.S. I want to thank you very much, uh, Eric Martin, our Mexican uh, government and economy reporter, joining us from Mexico City.
Now, just imagine this one big company that would include Charter Communications, Verizon Communications, Actillion, Johnson & Johnson, Luxottica, and Essilor. I guess there you'd have uh, somebody wearing uh, sunglasses, uh, perhaps uh, doing an ad for a, uh, a cable network, uh, and perhaps uh, getting a Band-Aid from Johnson & Johnson. I'm talking mergers and acquisitions, and here to help us is Nancy Havens Hasty, President, Chief Investment Officer of Havens Advisors. Nancy, thank you for being here. Um, did I uh, mangle all that correctly? Did I put that all into a stew? You put all the pairs together appropriately. All right. So tell <laughs> Tell us your pers- give us your uh, a little bit of your background so that people understand your perspective in mergers and acquisitions. Describe what 2016 was like and tell us what you believe this current uh, environment is like. Okay, um, I have been uh, in engaged in merger arbitrage uh, for thirty uh, some years, and um, I find it incredibly fascinating and fun. Um, I think uh, 2016 was extremely interesting. Um, it was. Can I just break in? Havens Advisors, Bear Stearns, just give people oh, okay. the, the professional so that we know where we're standing. Here. Sorry. That's um, okay. I spent 15 years at Bear Stearns and I started my own hedge fund 20 years ago Thanks. called Havens Advisors. Um, at any rate, in 2016, um, every, by almost every measure, MA was down. Global M&A was down 17%. Large deals that had a value in excess of a billion dollars were down 9%. North American deals were down 21%. Cross-border deals, which fared the best, were down 3%. However, Chinese deals, those in which a, China, a Chinese company was an acquirer, more than doubled. They were 2.2 two time, 2. 2 times what they had been in 2015. And it was by far the highest level that we'd ever seen for Chinese acquirers. Well, Nancy, and I, and I want to uh, piggyback on that. Uh, is there concern among M&A professionals who you speak to that the current administration's stance toward China will dampen prospects for these types of cross-border deals in the year or two ahead? Um, there is always more concern, fundamentally, regardless of administration, about Chinese deals. The information out of China on Chinese companies is much more opaque. So it makes it more difficult in general to invest in deals that involve a Chinese company. On top of that now, as you point out, we have a new administration and Trump Trump has made it more than clear how he feels about Chinese acquirers, Chinese almost anything. And as a result, um, he we are all worried about what he will do or will impose. Um, he does have limitations. He has to follow the law. Companies that are not being treated fairly can go back and uh, back to court or go to court if they are sued. And, and they can make the transaction happen anyway, because unless laws are passed, which has not happened yet and could and takes an enormously long time, um, we, we won't have any framework that, if, in fact, totally prevents Chinese companies from doing business in this country. 
I'm going to pull you down into the weeds just a little bit, Nancy, because I'm wondering if there are any of these combinations you'd like to potentially talk about in terms of investment. So I mentioned charter communications in Verizon, Actillion and Johnson & Johnson, uh, the Luxottica and Essilor uh, deal. Uh, that means, uh, you know, French and Italian interests coming together. What 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 were you looking at right now? Well, um, we're looking at all of them. Okay. Um, uh, with respect to um, the charter deal, um, that is in a potential vi- potential. That you is in an extraordinarily right. preliminary stage. If it's in any stage at all, um, there it's clear that they have had some sort of discussions over the last six months. But it's also clear that uh, or one news source came out this morning that said there was nothing going on right now. And the stock is down as a result today. We don't tend to invest in any pre-deal pretty much ever because they're very, very risky. And um, but in this particular case, Charter is a highly levered company that just did a big deal with Time Warner. It has major overlap with uh, Verizon. Neither company has low leverage. Um, I think generally analysts are not excited about the transaction, analysts, Verizon analysts, that is. Um, they do admit that it will give the companies additional growth, but they don't they do believe there are big challenges, and especially since Verizon has always had a strategy of rolling out 5G, and they're not sure they want investment going into charter right now. When I talk with private equity uh, executives or, or people in the industry, one concern about M&A volumes this year is just how high valuations are. There aren't as many attractive targets given where stocks are. How much do you think this will weigh on the total volume of M&A this year? Well, I actually am very optimistic about volume for this year. First of all, we have we. it looks like we will have a much, much better regulatory environment. Um, Trump's initial uh, appointees for the FCC chair and um, for the attorney general. That's Mr. Ajit Pai. Right. Yes, Ajit who we Pai. would, uh, by the way, uh, appointed. He's on the com- uh, FCC currently. Right. So uh, he will be able to assume the chairman's role without any. Uh, Immediately. Exactly. And, and by the way, we'd also love him to come on the program anytime. So <laughs> that's Well, he thing. is, he is a, clearly a very pro business bent. Um, and he's been vocal in his opposition to net neutrality. Um, And uh, also Jeff Sessions made uh, some real comments in his hearings about... Attorney General. Attorney General, how uh, M&A should be handled from a regulatory standpoint. And he uh, was a fairly strict um, statutory person, which is good news because it means that we'll be using traditional measures for... Uh, antitrust, but it's also clear that in general, the Trump administration is very uh, unpro-regulation. So that will make it very good. We're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, I could talk to you all afternoon. Uh, Nancy Havens, Hasty President and Chief Investment Officer of Havens Advisors on the Outlook for Mergers and Acquisitions. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.